Okay. Well, I've been asked to talk about positioning of lymphocyte trafficking agents, and um, I don't think I'm going to provide you definitive answers where they fit in, but I'm going to provide a broad overview, and you'll make your own choices and opinion, I think. So uh, I'll start by touching on why we need better therapies, review the biology of the, these drugs, talk about the key efficacy and safety data, focusing on vetalism of the drug that's available, talk about the horizon agents, and um, a little bit about algorithms. So starting off, um, it's really important to recognize that uh, we are approaching a quarter century of experience with TNF antagonists since this initial report by Sonda van de Venter in The Lancet. So TNF antagonists, you could argue, um, getting elderly myself, these are kind of yesterday's drugs. And we're getting better agents, and unfortunately, gastroenterologists don't change quickly. Um, we're subjects of habit, uh, and um, there has to be compelling reasons for us to change, and I think that's where we're going with this discussion. Well, the first compelling reason to change, and I think Steve really pointed this out, is that these drugs are far from perfect when it comes to efficacy. Note the y-axis on this typical TNF antagonist remission um, demonstration. You see that it's not 70, 80, 90 percent response rates, it's 30 to 40 percent. And we've come to understand that these drugs have a significant Achilles heel, and that's risk of serious infection, as was shown in this multivariable analysis from the TREAT program. And I think uh, this is a, a little game I like to play with audience, and the question in your mind is, how old are you? And I can tell you how old you are by the response to this question. If you have a patient who's going to have a serious infection, what is that type of infection on a TNF blocker? What, what is really going to get you into trouble? So this is below 50 or above 50 years of age is the, is the defining point. So this is the list, this is the answers if you're over 50. It's tuberculosis, histoplasmosis, and other opportunistic infection. Usually pneumocystis cranii, which you've never seen, but it scares the bejesus out of you. Okay, so that's the old person's answer. The correct answer is this one. It's pneumococcal pneumonia, influenza pneumonia, and pelvic abscess in a patient with fistulizing Crohn's disease. Well, why am I making this distinction? It's because the first list, there's not a lot you can do about, but the second list, you can immunize against pneumococci, influenza, and those things. So I'm not making a tremendous point about infection with TNF antagonists. It is what it is. It's a limitation of these drugs, and you have to overcome it. But it would be nice to have something better. So the first point, they're good drugs, TNF blockers, but they are limited because they're systemic immunosuppressant and infection's the problem. And you need to immunize to prevent those sorts of problems. Well, let's move on to the selective leukocyte inhibitors. And I think we're all familiar with the mechanism of action here. You're really trapping the lymphocytes in the circulation and preventing them from egressing the circulation into the tissue and causing tissue damage. And this approach uh, really came uh, initially targeting alpha-4, but we've learned after um, about five years of experience that this lack of selectivity uh, was a problem, so we moved on and more selectively targeted the alpha-4 beta-7 integrin, which is responsible through its interaction with MADCAM with trafficking of T-lymphocytes to the gut specifically. And the development of vetalizumab and its uh, efficacy 
efficacy and safety in both Crohn's disease was really a new chapter for, for therapeutics in IBD. And I'm just showing you here the ulcerative colitis study data from the Gemini study indicating efficacy and induction and a very strong maintenance effect uh, showing corticosteroid free remission at a year. So this was really a very important advance in the therapeutics of ulcerative colitis. Now, in Crohn's disease, a little bit of a different issue. And induction therapy in Gemini 2 showed this result, where, in fact, the clinical remission efficacy endpoint actually was statistically significant, but of arguable clinical benefit with only a 7% delta from placebo. So when we looked at the re-randomization of patients in this study into maintenance, a very strong maintenance benefit. Again, a nice corticosteroid sparing effect. But if you don't have induction, you don't have maintenance. So this was really uh, a negative feature of the drug. People questioned its value given the efficacy results for induction. And I think it really curtailed the advance of the drug into the marketplace. Now, we've come to um, acquire additional data that I think really allows us to think about this question. Is it an induction agent? And Bruce Sands was uh, important in performing this study, which was published in Gastroenterology a few years ago. And unlike the Gemini study, where there was a six-week induction endpoint, this looked at the drug at 10 weeks. And here we see quite a different picture where a clinically meaningful effect from placebo for remission and response was identified not only in naive patients, but also failure patients. So a very important clinical takeaway, that this is not a six-week induction drug. The drug has a benefit induction, and one needs to look at a 10- to 12-week induction period for assessing efficacy. And one important message that I really think we need to understand as well, it's not like these patients are standing still during that six weeks while you're waiting for 10 to 12 weeks. And this was an analysis that we recently published in CGH looking at the magnitude of the effect on symptoms by over the time period of six weeks. Remember, the patients who came into the study, Gemini 2, were really sick. They had a CDI score on average of about 330. And what we see here is that there's a 30% drop in the overall group on average of uh, the score, which translates into a CDI score of 100 points. Now, that's something clinical trialists know what that means, but you know what it means as a clinician, too. 100 points is very clinically tangible. So I'm trying to emphasize that vetalizumab is an induction drug, but you have to understand the kinetics of the response. And certainly in UC, there is no issue with regard to rapidity of response. It's as effective as any agent we have, again, as shown as this change in bleeding scores over time um, analysis from the Gemini 1 study shows. Um, One other possible uh, or common misperception about the use of vetalizumab So this is a gut-selective drug. What about extraintestinal manifestations? The commonest uh, extraintestinal manifestations is arthritis, arthralgia, and um, that's much more common in Crohn's disease, about twice as common in ulcerative colitis. But for many patients, this is debilitating. And so one concept that came forward was, well, if this drug is selective for the GI tract, it can't possibly be dealing with systemic manifestations. Well, that really depends on whether the chicken or the egg is at play here. 
And uh, what we've come to understand, and many of you know from treating things like erythema nodosum, if you get the colonic disease activity under control, in fact, the extraintestinal manifestations come under control. And that's really what this shows in this analysis of the Gemini study data showing that actually the drug is effective for treating extraintestinal manifestations. And there have been several observational studies, and there's a few more in the works right now that actually show this as well. As far as extraintestinal manifestations of arthritis, vetalizumab is quite effective for therapy. Now, I'm not advocating using the drug to treat life-threatening conditions such as uh, well, site-threatening uveitis or limb-threatening pyoderma. So, but for most patients with uh, arthritis arthralgia, this is an effective therapy. Similarly, uh, fistulizing disease, um, there's only one agent that has a dedicated trial, a randomized trial, in fistulizing disease, and that's infliximab. Everything else comes out of observational data from subgroup analysis of RCTs. And what we see here is are the data that are available in about 50 patients for um, vedalizumab in the Gemini 2 study, consistent with the benefit of therapy. So, again, that's not to say I'm advocating vedalizumab to treat water and can perineum, but if a patient has a fistula as part of the symptom complex, that is not a reason not to use vedalizumab in that setting. Well, I mentioned real-world cohorts, and it seems like every couple weeks there's a vedalizumab cohort being published from some jurisdiction, and I'm just showing these. Um, Over the years, I've never been a really strong advocate of observational data to determine efficacy, but uh, many people find these studies comforting, and I'll just... um, there's been some surprising results from these. I think some of the studies are quite large. Uh, The victory cohort uh, shown on the far right-hand data, and the response rates, if anything, are higher than what we've observed in the clinical trials, including endoscopic response rates, which were not part of the initial evaluations in the Gemini program for Crohn's disease. Now, I just want to point out really the highlight of this talk, and this is really a remarkable demonstration of the promise of vedalizumab therapy. When this drug was in early development, we felt that it could be used early in disease because of its promise of safety. And I think this promise has been fulfilled. The slide is showing an analysis of data that Jean-Fred Colombel put together from the randomized controlled trials. And what I'm showing here is combination rates for placebo and vedalizumab from those trials of the events of any infection lower respiratory tract infection and and upper respiratory tract infection. And these are adjusted for exposure, so the rates of events are expressed in events per 100 patient years. And what we see here is pooled UC and CD estimates versus placebo. And our hypothesis was that these, in fact, rates would be the same. That's not what you see here. You actually see the point estimates are lower with vedalizumab than placebo. And that's quite a remarkable finding. And you might say, well, that's impossible. How can it be lower than placebo? Remember, placebo-treated patients are also those that have high disease activity and are exposed to steroids, which are risk factors for infection. So this really is a fundamental observation, that here we have a drug that's gut-selective that has no risk of increased risk of infection, which is quite a distinguishing feature. And, well... Brian, that's great, but you told me that it is directed towards immune-suppressing the gut. There has to be a price to pay for that. And we did see 
a modest increase in C. difficile infections in Gemini program. Uh, not very striking at all, but of course you could say, well, clinical trials are limited in their sample size. Well, here's the real-world experience now coming out, and it really is substantiating what we saw in the clinical trials, is that there does not appear to be a striking increase in C. difficile infections, which you know clinically is a major a bane of your existence in practice. So this is good news as well. So to summarize this aspect of the talk, uh, vedolizumab is the first gut-selective agent. It has an unprecedented safety record. It's effective in both UC and CD for induction, highly effective for maintenance. Its onset of action is slower in Crohn's disease, and you have to deal with that if you want to use this agent. It's highly effective in maintenance. Observational data are coming in, and there have been no real surprises in the real-world experience and uh, it's supportive of a very appropriate therapeutic index for use in both UC and CD. I'll now move on and talk about horizon agents and what uh, new approaches, and there are several of these. And the first is vetalizumab in subcutaneous form. And I'm just going to just briefly show the results of a clinical trial that was performed uh, and presented by Bill Sanborn a couple months ago at UEGW. So this is a dose, well, it's actually a direct comparison of subcutaneous vedolizumab to intravenous vedolizumab following induction therapy with a standard regimen of two doses intravenously that you're used to. And the endpoint here was remission in ulcerative colitis patients with active disease at week 52. So on the left-hand panel, you see the placebo versus intravenous in red and subcutaneous in green. And um, this was not designed as a non-inferiority study between the two parenteral administration routes. They're both direct comparisons to placebo. They're both st statistically significant. And with the clinical eye of faith, you can see that there's not much difference between the two routes of administration. And just as a reference, you can look back to the original Gemini 1 results shown on the right-hand panel, and the placebo responses were similar in those two um, trials, across the trials. So this is, I believe, is very strong evidence that we can now use the subcutaneous formulation, and we all know that payers don't like intravenous uh, preparations, and this will, I think, benefit patients um, directly. As far as new agents, uh, the one that really is uh, on the horizon, just within the next uh, year, you're going to see multiple clinical trials coming off the drawing board and uh, results from with etralizumab, which is an antibody against beta-7. So it targets both alpha-E beta-7 and alpha-4 beta-7 mechanisms, alpha-E beta-7 being responsible for lymphocyte tethering in the epithelium. So this is a less selective agent than, than alpha-4 beta-7-directed therapies, um, vetalizumab. So it might have greater efficacy. It might have more side effects uh, because it affects a different mechanism. The first phase two study was reported some years ago in The Lancet, and it showed a very nice result uh, with uh, proof of concept. And moreover, in a um, biomarker study based on mucosal biopsies, showed that patients who had high expressions of alpha-E beta-7 in the mucosa were more likely to respond, as shown in the lower panel on the right-hand side. So this is in a personalized medicine approach, conceivably, where we could improve the therapeutic uh, gain of this therapy by using biomarker at baseline based on histopathological biopsy. 
A very exciting concept is using oral peptides in place of antibodies and delivering peptides through the GI tract, stabilizing them against peptidases and bile, and targeting the mucosa itself. So again, the notion of gut selectivity and really hitting the compartment of interest directly. Um, just at DDW, uh, the results of the PROPEL study were reported, and this was a dose-finding study with this new oral peptide, which is directed against alpha-4, beta-7, so akin to the vedolizumab target. You can see the conventional dose-finding resign, and this was an analysis based on endoscopy, and in my mind, when I look at this, it looks like there's dose response and proof of concept for this. The results are perhaps suboptimal, but this is early days for this compound. Uh, I believe those results were substantiated very strongly by this analysis of histopathology, again, where we see a linear dose response curve and a significant difference in the highest dose against placebo. So this uh, molecule is actually a variant of this molecule is now going on to further development. So talking about horizon agents, subcutaneous vetalizumab is a promising new approach. Etralizumab, you should have lots of data next year, and this peptide-directed therapy against alpha-4, beta-7 seems promising. I'd like to now just finish off talking briefly about treatment algorithms and how they fit in and perhaps uh, positioning the agent. I just, uh, we've heard this point, I think, twice already in the meeting, and it'll probably be the whole theme of the meeting. As far as Crohn's disease, Step care is flawed, so positioning of agents is very important. So in Crohn's disease, high-risk Crohn's disease, use your most effective agent early in the disease course, and then that really push comes to shove with regard to positioning. Which agent is going to be? Well, that really depends on the patient characteristics. Uh, the risk of immune suppression is a downfall of the TNF antagonists. They're highly effective. So it's important because we know that your first choice is your best choice, as Steve alluded to earlier, and that really has been borne out by our analysis of endoscopic remission rates. If you take naive patients, we do okay. We're looking at 20% endoscopic remission. If you take patients who have been experienced and have failed biologic drugs and you try to achieve mucosal healing as per the STRIDE guidelines, the rates are down to single figures. So this notion of use your best drug first, use it early, and use highly effective therapy early. But having said that, uh, I guess I'm a bit cynical about any one of our single agents to change the world by themselves. I don't think this disease is um, psoriasis. You're not going to have a single therapy that's really going to change the thing. And I think the issue here, it's like global airline networks. If you really want to mess up the system, Take out both Chicago and LaGuardia, and then you've got an issue, okay? And it eerily looks like T-cell biology, that uh, it's clustered in nodes too, and you can imagine if you hit a couple key nodes that you're going to have a much more dramatic effect, as we saw with Sonic, than if you concentrate on single places. And um, so combining combination therapy as one futuristic concept with this concept and this is a paper by Perimbir Dulai that is uh, looking at prognostic modeling for vetalizumab therapy, who's going to respond. And this was a clinical prediction tool that you could use using clinical and uh, biochemical parameters. For years, we've known that fistulizing patients don't do as well, um, that patients who have failed a TNF antagonist don't do as well. 
and um, that um, there are certain other predictors, laboratory predictors, such as albumin, which govern response to monoclonal antibodies. So Pear and Beer developed this score that would allow you to, with, with some degree of certitude, uh, identify who would respond to vetalizumab therapy. And I think that's um, sort of the beginning of our ability to predict, which is really what we need to really advance the field. So finishing off the, the fourth point I'd make about clinically abuse algorithms, combination therapy, probably new generation is the way to go. Anti-integrins are going to be part of this because of their safety. So you can add other compounds to these agents. Identification of high-risk patients is really the critical step, and treating to a specific target is also an important concept. So that's my overview. I've covered a lot of ground stress the need that the integrins are part of better therapies. As far as their positioning, I think it remains patient-dependent. We need better algorithms. We need better predictions about who, to pay, who will respond optimally. And I'm going to conclude at this point. Thank you.